0: Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His word to what's happening here and now. On this episode of All Things, I am thrilled to have Matt Martins join me. Matt is a Christian, a criminal lawyer. He has been a federal prosecutor. He has written for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, and he is currently writing a book for Crossway, which is also my publisher, and how I happened to bump into Matt's work online. Since finding him on Twitter, I have learned so much from articles, stories, and statistics that he shares several times a day, opening his followers' eyes to the need for reform in our criminal justice system. Matt, I am so so grateful for your online presence, and I'm eagerly awaiting your book. And I really appreciate you taking time to be on all things. I have long desired to address these issues on this podcast, but I have felt woefully ill-equipped. So thank you for joining us. So why don't we start out by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what your current work looks like.
1: Well, thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me on, uh, and I'm honored to be here. So I have been a lawyer for uh, coming up on 26 years now. Um, as you said, uh, I'm a Christian, and people ask me uh, you know, about my conversion story. It's very boring. I, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. I don't remember a time when I didn't believe I was raised in a Christian home. I've, I've, praise God for that. And uh, I've been a Christian my whole life. And about about 10 years ago, maybe, maybe a little longer now, maybe about 15 years ago in 2007, I think it was, I decided to attend Dallas Seminary as a part-time student while I was working as a federal prosecutor. And so I took classes through their extension program and uh, through their uh, presence in Atlanta. And I actually went to Dallas and took classes online and and did that. And it was a a great blessing. It helped me uh, think about a lot of issues that I probably believed but didn't really understand why I believed. And uh, so I finished that up in 2010. Um, And for about the last eight years, I've been working again as a defense Criminal defense lawyer. I began my career as a criminal defense lawyer, and in between, spent about a, almost a decade as a prosecutor. So I've seen the system uh, from, the, from all sides. And as you mentioned, I've been writing a book about the, uh, I guess, twenty six years of thoughts on the topic.
0: Yeah, I think that's so fascinating that you attended seminary, you know, in your free time while being a federal prosecutor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my that's free time is my wife would the- say.
0: Yeah, that's intense. But it does give you a unique depth of understanding in both theology and justice issues. And of course, your work as a criminal lawyer and as a federal prosecutor has been impacted by this. So just to kick us off, I realize this is a huge question, but can you tell us what you have observed in your work that moved you to write your forthcoming book, which is entitled, as of now anyway, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I know that this topic has become uh, an, a hot one as of late because of events, probably beginning with Ferguson, Missouri, and most recently with George Floyd. But this has been a topic that I've been interested in for several decades. In fact, as I was thinking about um, coming on your podcast, I remember that 20, 23 years ago, probably, I wrote an editorial or a letter to the editor of my local paper about uh, racial profiling and policing. So it's been a topic that's been of interest to me for a long time, uh, you know. I think it's, it's the function of just experience in terms of seeing how the system works. I think most people have an understanding of the criminal justice system from television shows or movies, uh, you know, Law and Order, or they've watched A Few Good Men uh, with Tom Cruise or something like that. And so that, those are the visions that they have of the criminal justice system. And the reality is the system is very different um, and how it works every day, and uh, whether or not it's just—I think—is a is an issue that I've been thinking about as I've been observing it for years. And so, I, ultimately, what there, there were a number of thing of sort of events that I can probably look back on that contributed to me deciding to put pen to paper. One of them was in seminary. I, I still remember uh, sitting in a particular class and and hearing it was on the doctrine of sin and man. And I heard the professor, um, as I was listening to him, I suddenly realized that kind of what I understood the, the Bible to be saying about what Jesus accomplished through his work was something more, something different, or maybe something more robust than what I had understood. Um, and I, I remember a student raised his hand around the same time that this. I had this dawning in my mind. And and said, so what you're saying is that the Bible is the story of redemption. And it was such an obvious point, but I felt like one that in some ways maybe I had missed, that I had, I had understood the story to be more about how I could individually be saved. And it certainly is that. But Jesus is doing something greater than that in redeeming the world from sin. I can talk about that some more. And so I think that that, that was a catalyst. Um, the events in Ferguson, Missouri at the time I was attending – I still do attend Capitol Hill Baptist Church and had a number of conversations with fellow church members, including Isaac Adams, who recently uh, released an excellent book on how to talk about race. And he and I talked about criminal justice, and, and he was like, you need, to, you need to write on this. And I was like, yeah, I hear you. I don't have a lot of time. I'm, I'm really busy. And we went out for dinner, my wife and I, with him and his wife, and he was pressing me that you really just need to write this book. This was like in 2000 probably 16. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I do. And, you know, I'll put that on my to-do list. Um, and then George Floyd happened in, uh, the murder of George Floyd happened in the summer of, I guess it was 2020. And I started writing on my Facebook page, which is a closed Facebook page, just a series of articles. Uh, I guess you would call them, you know, thousand or 2000 words about criminal justice. And the reaction to them was very positive, just as I explained to people how the system worked. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't making an argument about George Floyd or anything. I was just explaining how the system worked, various features of it. And people were shocked, like, to learn that that's how certain aspects of our system worked and were appalled, uh, frankly, at some aspects of it. And so at that point I realized, you know, I, I really probably should take Isaac up on a suggestion and write this book. And so I sat down and wrote a proposal uh, and sent it out to several publishers and two of them were interested, including Crossway.
0: I can imagine. Yeah. I want to, I want to come back to how the system works and all those ways that you surprise your readers on your Facebook page. Um, but I can imagine just picturing you taking classes in seminary, um, being a federal prosecutor, also a criminal lawyer in these space, in these Christian spaces that I would, I imagine are somewhat diverse. Um, did you, was that uncomfortable for you? Did you, were, did you hear from multiple corners of the room, just preach the gospel? That's something that I certainly hear frequently and I hear being passed around, but this hesitation to um, speak into justice issues or even anything uh, that, that's considered peripheral to the gospel, that phrase, just preach the gospel. How did you respond to that at the time and how do you respond to that now?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. When I put together my book proposal, I did not have a chapter on the gospel. And as I sat down and started writing, I realized I needed to get back up to first principles and to start with the gospel. And so I have a chapter um, entitled The Gospel and Social Justice. And that I guess the title of that chapter will be somewhat provocative. Uh, but my my point is this, that the gospel, and this is back to the point I made about sitting in that seminary class, the gospel is bigger than penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus did more on the cross than pay a penalty for my sins. He certainly did that, and thank God for that. Um, but he did so much more than that. I was thinking uh, just this morning about the um, song before a thousand tongues to sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. It is canceled sin, thank God for that. But he breaks the power of that sin over my life, uh, as he did that on the cross, um, or, or rock of ages, be of sin, a double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. It's not just that he saves me from his wrath, though it is that. And I think there's a tendency in evangelicalism to, to, when they say preach the gospel, what they mean is preach penal substitution. When they say preach the gospel, what they mean is preach the doctrine of justification. And that, and that is part of the gospel, but the gospel is bigger than that. John Calvin was was really good on this. He talks extensively about the double grace of salvation, which he describes as justification and sanctification. And so if your gospel doesn't speak to how you live, then it is not the whole gospel. Uh, First Peter 1, 2 says that we were elect for obedience, the point was to change who we are as people, not just to declare us righteous, but to make us righteous. Not to just not to just declare us just, but to make us just in how we live. That's why Paul could say to those of us who are being saved, because I am being saved every day as as Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, transforms me um, into the Im- into His image. And so, I, I think that. If you're saying just preach the gospel and stay away from social issues, I have a lot of questions about what gospel you're preaching, because the gospel is about social issues. It's about how I live individually and socially in my interactions with others. And so uh, that's why I wanted to back up and say and address an issue with, with an argument that's just preach the gospel argument, which frankly is not a new one. If you, it's, it's uh, fitting that we're talking about this here today on Martin Luther King day 2022, because in the, the Martin Luther King faced that same argument in 1963, he writes about it in his letter from Birmingham jail where he writes to the white moderate uh, pastor who's telling him, you know, can't you chill, you know, with all this uh, social justice stuff um, and just stick to the gospel. And so this is not a new argument. And the argument is, just as bad in 2022 as it was in 1963, that the gospel speaks to how we live with one another.
0: Why do you think we have that pushback, Matt? Why is it so common to hear just preach the gospel? What's the discomfort there?
1: You know, I'm sure there's a lot of motivations. I'm sure some of it is well-intentioned, that there's a a genuine passion for seeing people converted and come to know Jesus as their Savior, and, and we should all want that. And so I do think that some people say when well, a world of limited resources, when I can only talk about uh, so much and do so much, that shouldn't we focus on first principles and, and the most important thing? And, and my response is we should. We should focus on the most important thing as described by Scripture, which is that he, that Jesus has provided through his work on the cross a double grace of, make, of declaring me righteous and then working in my life every day to make me righteous You know, are there some people perhaps who are who have uh, different and less honorable motives? I mean, perhaps there are, but I think a lot of it is honest and and well-intentioned and just misguided.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, as you say, things in the United States, um, in one sense, have always been like this. And then in another sense, maybe got a little bit more intense and tumultuous, um, maybe back after Ferguson, the Ferguson protests broke out um, and the death of Mike Brown. Um, That's right when my family moved back to the United States after having been overseas for about 15 years. So um, my husband and I are both natives of Denver, Colorado, but we were gone for a long time and raised our kids overseas. And so when we got back, things felt incredibly contentious to us. Um, Obviously, uh, President Trump was about to be elected, and we just Had a hard time really recognizing um, just our social circle here in the US and hearing really different stories from people that we loved that were even in community together. You know, on the one hand, it felt like we were hearing from friends that there is pervasive injustice, um, that there is a systemic issue that needs to be addressed. And then on the other hand, it felt like friends were saying, no, what we need is just greater law and order. Nothing's broken. Um, We just need greater law and order. Two very different perspectives on current events unfolding right before our eyes. And it was, it was really disorienting. Why do you think there are two very different narratives when looking at the same current events. What has caused this?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. I I think that some of it, and I, and I try to address this in my book, I think some of it is, uh, uh, history and, and folks either understanding or not understanding certain aspects of history. And so Just to take the criminal, just to focus on the criminal justice system in particular, I don't Mm -hmm. think you can understand well the divergence in perspective on criminal justice that that white Americans have and African American Americans have uh, without without understanding the history of how criminal justice has been used in America, uh, has been weaponized, and that's not that's not meant to be rhetoric. That's historical fact and I write about this in my book, that after the Civil War, the criminal justice system was weaponized to reverse the effects of the war. And and it was that occurred in in two ways, at least by over prosecuting black Americans and under prosecuting white Americans, over prosecuting black Americans in order to um, continue to uh, allow for felon disenfranchisement in order to perpetuate convict leasing, a topic that, um, Wall Street Journal reporter Douglas Blackburn writes about in his book, Slavery by Another Name, which, frankly, I think everybody should read, Um, but also by under-prosecuting whites who had engaged in violence against blacks to, for example, uh, prevent them from voting or participating in social life. And so the criminal justice system was part of uh, perpetuating social control over African-Americans after the Civil War. And and that wasn't just a, a few years after the Civil War, convict leasing um, continued into the 1940s, um, felon disenfranchisement um, continues today. Uh, the use of violence by whites uh, to prevent people from black uh, from voting, blacks from voting, continued well into the 1960s. Um, lynching in the United States continued into the 1960s. So th- this is all within a decade. Uh, you know, most of that's within a decade of my birth. So it's not ancient history. And so, so if you are unfamiliar with those misuses of the criminal justice system, the over-prosecuting of blacks, the under-prosecuting of whites, uh, then you will have a very different view of of the criminal justice system. If you don't understand how the system was used then calls for law and order may to you sound entirely innocuous and simply like good good criminal justice policy. But if you don't, I, I said this just the other day on Twitter, if you don't know what the law is, then calls for law and order might be calls for injustice. Uh, Law and order, uh, law is not a moral concept. Order is not a moral concept. Justice is. And so you you can, uh, law and order has content. Uh, Nazi Germany had law and order. Uh, Communist China has law and order. They just don't have, neither of them had a just law and order. And so I think folks think law and order is, um, is, that People come to it with a particular mindset as to what they mean, um, but they may do that with, without a full understanding either of the law or the history. And so uh, it can hit different on different people to hear those words because their life experiences or the familiarity with history are different. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is, is educate people both about that history um, and also about the, how the system works and I suspect that after doing that, people might not think law and order is necessarily the right way um, to look at this. I think that for the Christian, the question, and this is what I argue in my book, the question isn't a call for law and order, but a call to love our neighbors.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you hit on some really important points that are alarmingly political at this point, you know, mm-hmm. just arguing that our history has some significant gaps in where we are in the present moment has a lot to do with how history has been told um, through the decades since the civil war or even before. Um, So I appreciate that. I wish that it were easy enough to sort of get around the table and say, okay, then let's teach history better. Um, But we see with the current CRT debate throughout the nation, that that is um, just even having that conversation is almost impossible. Um, So I appreciate your perspective just on the limited history and then the limited, limited understanding of history and limited understanding of The system. And you sort of pointed to that at the beginning um, of our conversation. And again, I know we're just on this podcast here for 30, 40 minutes at the most, but um, can you start to unpack that a little bit for us? What is it about the system that we don't understand? Or what were some of those articles you were writing around the time of the murder of George Floyd that were most enlightening to your readers?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I can just give a couple examples of I think things that, as I've explained them, have shocked people. And I can just take two examples. So one of the ways that the criminal justice system was used and misused, as I said, was to over-prosecute blacks or under-prosecute whites. Um, And and a, a critical element of accomplishing that was excluding blacks from juries, so our system, our, our United States Constitution and the Sixth Amendment guarantees you a right not just to a criminal trial, but to a trial by jury. And many state constitutions do the same. And the the jury, the group of average citizens, um, might um, might actually think the conduct is bad uh, that's being that was being prosecuted. So if someone was being prosecuted for murdering someone who was trying to register people to vote, for example, uh, register African Americans to vote. Um, a jury of black uh, men and women might think that that's a bad thing to do. Some, some white men and women might think that as well. But what what prosecutors and defense lawyers, corrupt prosecutors and, and defense lawyers who were sometimes in on it recognized was that if changing the composition of the jury could affect the outcome of the case. And so after the Civil War, there was initially an effort just to, by law, exclude blacks from juries. And then the Supreme Court struck that down and said, you can't do that in the late 1800s. And so then they changed the rule to where the clerk of court would say, well, you can only serve on a jury if you're a person of good reputation. And what do you know? They made judgments that only white people were of good reputation. And so then that gets struck down. And so then the new technique is using um, what are called peremptory challenges. So you're allowed to strike jurors if you're a defense lawyer, a prosecutor, you're like to just eliminate jurors for cause. For example, if you know the defendant or you're involved in the events, or you say, I can't be fair, that's a for cause challenge. But there's also something called a peremptory challenge, which is a right to strike jurors for no reason at all. Um, just to say, you know, for whatever reason, that person, I just don't think is going to be inclined to my case. And you get a certain number of those. And so this practice arose where, uh, either depending on the case, the prosecutor or the defense lawyer would strike African-American jurors disproportionately because of their race so that they could over prosecute a black defendant or under prosecute, so to speak, a white defendant ensuring their acquittal. And so this this continues until 1985, when the Supreme Court, um, for the first time in 1985, uh, 13 years after I was born, says you can't strike you can't strike jurors because they're black. That's unconstitutional. 1985. So you think, well, okay, 1985's late, but better late than never. Um, but in fact, it continues as a rampant practice to this very day, despite that ruling. Um, you saw this come up recently in the Ahmad Arbury case, um, where it was raised that the defense lawyers um, were striking African American uh, jurors. But there's a much uh, famous case that made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court in 2019, Flowers versus Mississippi, in which a man was um, tried, I believe it was six times, for murder. Each time his conviction being reversed for prosecutorial misconduct, most of the time the prosecutorial misconduct was removing all the black jurors. Um, this is 2019. He spent more than 20 years in prison before the Supreme Court finally in 2019 reverses his conviction one last time and says, enough, you've got to try the man fairly, at which point the state of Mississippi says, well, never mind if we're going to have to do that, and drops the case. Um, After he spent more than 20 years in prison going through uh, multiple trials, each of which was unjust. Uh, I, I think that when I explain to folks that that notion of striking black jurors in order to to achieve results is still being done by prosecutors today, I think that surprises people.
0: Yeah, uh, it is shocking.
1: Yeah, and so that's that's one example. I think another thing that I've explained that has surprised people is the way that bail um, is used or misused to accomplish easy convictions. So the idea of bail funds, uh, organizations that raise money to pay bail for, for poor people has become a hot political topic, again, because I think folks don't fully understand the way bail is misused. So for a lot of, the, again, the Constitution again, guarantees you a right to uh, reasonable bail. I think what the average American um, who doesn't have experience with the criminal justice system doesn't appreciate is that for a lot of Americans, and frankly, for most people caught up in the criminal justice system, um, even a small amount of bail is going to be un- unachievable. Something that you could you could make the bail a hundred, a $1, thousand dollars. You can make the bail a million dollars. A thousand dollars for them is a million dollars. They're not going to be able to pay that, and and so the result is they stay in jail often on relatively minor offenses, and while they're in jail on these relatively minor offenses, they're losing their job, which means they can't. It's it's causing problems with feeding their children, or someone watching their children, um, or their ability to pay rent. That that creates enormous economic pressure on folks. And so, after a few months in jail, uh, the prosecutor can come to you and say, "Okay, you can plead guilty to this relatively minor offense, which seems like a relatively minor offense, and you'll get time served." And you can go home today or you can choose your day in trial and sit in the can for another six, seven months, a year, two years, um, uh, literally years at times waiting for your trial. And maybe you'll be vindicated. Maybe at that point, the prosecutor will drop the case. But meanwhile, you've you've faced economic destruction. Um, And so providing people these bail funds are designed to provide people with bail. So, that they can get out, continue to support their children, uh, pay the rent, um, live their lives, and not create economic pressure to plead guilty. And th- there's a compounding effect to this, which is that that you then layer on top of that three strikes in your out statutes, where people are picking up strikes, so to speak, because of this economic pressure to plead guilty and to forego their right to a jury trial. Um, it has a compounding effect. Particularly on people who are poor, um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author or journalist uh, Tony Messenger just wrote a book about this last year called "Profit and Punishment," which I which I would recommend, where he talks about how uh, this particularly um, plays out on um, people who are poor, which frankly make up something like eighty percent of criminal defendants. Uh, so it's a it's a very it, it's a it's a way that people can be denied the right to a jury trial again, back to what I said at the beginning, we tend to think of uh, the legal system as what we see on TV, where someone gets a robust defense and a withering cross-examination of the witnesses against them at this trial with the dramatic moment where if the person is innocent, the the witness cracks and says, you're right, you didn't do it. I'm lying. And in fact, the vast majority of cases well over 90% the statistics put it somewhere around 95 to 97% of cases are resolved through guilty pleas and you have to ask yourself, why would everybody be giving up their right to a jury trial? Uh, and, and a significant part of the answer is because we're putting enormous economic pressure on them to do so.
0: That's, um, yeah, I, I don't think most of us know that. Can you, why, do you, why did we initiate the bail system and why do we keep it in place? These, glaring, these injustices are glaring. Why, why do we keep it around?
1: Well, so there's a a number of things. So so the bail system is 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 again well intentioned at its outset. It's recognized as a thing that the Constitution permits, and the idea was to allow you allow the state to have some means of ensuring that you'll appear for trial. In other words, you had to put some financial skin in the game. You had to say, here's X dollars, I promise to come back to, tri- to for my trial, and if I don't come back, I will forfeit that money, and then you'll chase me down and bring me in for trial, but I'll have lost the money in the meantime. And so the idea was a, a good one, and is a good one, which is to provide uh, assurance that people will appear for trial. But the reality is, and studies have shown, that when people get bail and they make bail, um, even, even at relatively small amounts, or even often with no amounts, they come back for trial. Um, I think people recognize they'll, they'll find me. Um, and, but, but what's happened over time is bail has become a means to, to prematurely punish people by that. I mean, lock them up before their conviction has been proven to punish them before their, their guilt has been established before their conviction has been achieved. And you can understand why prosecutors would find this to be a very useful tool, uh, Uh, Because it helps them get guilty pleas. I mean, a a related phenomenon that has developed at the same time is this idea of a trial penalty uh, where judges and prosecutors will threaten you with much more serious penalties in terms of jail time if you go to trial. Now, you just step back and think about that and say, in what other contexts? Do we, do we allow the government to punish people for ex- exercising their constitutional rights? The whole point of it a constitutional right is that the government can't punish me for exercising. Imagine if the, if the First Amendment was interpreted to say, well, you can go to church, but if you go to church, we're going to punish you. You'd be like, well, that's a violation of, the, of my right to freedom of religion. Or if we said, well, you have the right to free speech, but if you exercise that right, we're going to punish you. Be like, Well, you can't do that. That's the whole point of the First Amendment. But somehow in the criminal justice context, we've accepted the notion that if you go to trial, we'll punish you more than we would have punished you if you hadn't gone to trial. And it's very explicit. It's not even it's not even implied. It's literally you can. Judges will often say this. You can, you can go to trial. But you're gonna end up a whole lot worse off after you go to trial. It's built into the federal sentencing guidelines that you will be punished more if you go to trial and are convicted of the same offense than if you plead guilty. And so not only are we putting economic pressure on people to plead guilty uh, by through bail and the, the misuse of bail, but we're putting a, um, pressure on people to plead guilty by threatening them with more serious sentences if they decide they want to put on a defense. I mean, this is this is un-American, um, and it is frankly and it's unjust. It is denying people the opportunity um, to put on a defense to, to their, their due process right to be heard, which I argue in my book is a biblical concept. And so, when we're we're stymieing, we're frustrating the jury system, and as a result, there's a lot of negative effects of that. But I think one of them is that we're we're running the risk of um, coercing innocent people into pleading guilty. And it's not just a risk, it's a reality that every year when you look at the, the number of exonerations, whether in the death penalty context or otherwise, the number of exonerations that are achieved, a, a significant percentage of those is, is either false confessions or, guilt, or false guilty pleas. Mm. So just to take one example, last year in 2000, or I think it's 2021, there were 132, I think, um, exonerations. And, uh, I believe 14 of them were false confessions. Mm. Um, so the pressure that's being brought to bear on people is is literally causing people to plead guilty to things that they didn't do. We know that as a fact, it's not, it's not my rhetoric. We know as a fact based on subsequent exonerations that people have pled guilty to things they didn't do. I tweeted about this, I think earlier this year, that there was a situation where, I believe it was in New York, where there were some corrupt police officers who were, who were arresting and charging people with crimes. And they were made up crimes. They literally did not happen. And we, we know that because someone subsequently found videotape of the relevant location and found out that not only did these people not commit the crimes, the crimes didn't happen. And yet dozens of people pled guilty to those charges. They pled guilty because they obviously concluded that the economic pressure and the threat of a more serious sentence if they went to trial was not worth the risk, even though they were innocent. They were 100% innocent. They had not done it. In fact, no one had done it. There was no crime. Um, Dozens of people pled guilty to fake crimes. And you say, how could that happen? How could people get to the point where they conclude that it's better for me to admit I did something I didn't do then take my chance with this system. Um, And that's what I'm trying to educate people about is because as Christians, we ought to be concerned about those injustices. We ought to be also concerned about the injustices of of what is a terrible record of policing in the country that does not solve crimes that actually have occurred. And so victims are left uh, with the injustice of not having their crimes solved. Um, not having justice achieved for them. Our system is broken in many respects. I think people will be shocked to hear the statistics of how poor a job police do at clearing crimes, um, how few murders are actually solved, how few rapes are actually prosecuted, how few robberies are actually resulting in arrests and convictions. It is a, And it's an astonishing low rate for the amount of money that we spend on our criminal justice system. And so what I want is for people to be aware of of the fact that our system is not achieving justice for the accused. It is not achieving justice for victims of crimes. And we should all be outraged by that. I argue, and I believe this passionately, and I argue this in my book, every Christian should be outraged. Every American should be outraged by the, by the plea bargaining system. It corrupts justice for victims by denying them less than full punishment for their, for the perpetrator against them. And and at times it coerces pleas from innocent people and denies them the right to trial. We should all uh, be against that. And, and I hope that by educating people to how the system actually works and what the Bible actually says about justice, that maybe I can persuade some people to do that, to, to change their mind on that.
0: Yeah, I think it is so helpful just to have our eyes opened. And and my prayer is that with your book and books like it that you have mentioned, which I will link in our show notes so that listeners can go back and find those books and buy them and um, soak up this education. It's just that the um, awareness will change the way we talk about it and think about it. Um, somehow there's this veil between sort of the, I don't know, political rhetoric, common public, and what's really going on in our justice system. And somehow we don't, um, you know, in our, in our quote, free country, we don't actually know what's going on in the justice system. And that um, has allowed for these injustices to carry on, as you say, for, for both the victim and the accused. Um, and I'm struck, Matt, as you speak to just the layering of injustice, we, you know, we're dealing with um, racial identities, but then also economic, the realities of what, of poverty, as well as one's race. And I'm just struck personally with the reality that so much of what I have as an individual, so much of my privilege is simply because of the family and the time that I was born into. I was born into a family of some means, a family with white skin, a family in Colorado. You know, there's, there's all these layers of in God's sovereignty, for whatever reason, he allowed me to be born into a place where I enjoy many protections And many privileges. And so I just don't wrestle on a daily basis with what if I get pulled over or what if a charge is brought against me? Could I post bail? Could I afford a lawyer? Um, Of course, all of those things would be very challenging, but I would be able to face them in a very different way than someone um, of a different economic level or skin tone would be able to face it. And as you say, Christians must um, really grapple with this. Americans should be outraged. Christians should be outraged. Um, and clearly education is a big part of it. But what else can Christians do? What else can the, the person who's listening, who is shocked, who is outraged, who's going to go buy these books and, and learn more? What can, what can we who are not um, lawyers, <laughs> what can we be doing?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that what's been helpful to me as I've been thinking about this is just backing up to uh, the story where Jesus is approached by a lawyer and is asked, "What is the you know what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus says, "You know, he asks me what's the law say." And and he sums up the law: "Let's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself." And the neighbor re- and the lawyer reacts. I think like a lot of us react: "Who's my neighbor?" I love the phrase he says, seeking to justify himself, he says, who is my neighbor? Um, Because he recognized that if I have to care about too many people, this is going to be a little challenging. And so he wanted to narrow the definition of neighbor. And so Jesus tells, in response to that, the story of the Good Samaritan, in which he tells a story about a man who reached across the deepest social divide of his day. Um, it wasn't so much economic as it was ethnic. Uh, he has a story of a Samaritan who reaches across an ethnic divide, um, in a, what was for them a shocking way. Um, and, and then when he ends the story, he looks at the lawyer and says, not who is your neighbor? He said, who was a neighbor? In other words, he says, the relevant question isn't who are they, but who are you? And, and, and I think that that's a, an important thing for us to think about is that am I willing to put myself – can I reach across – can I even mentally reach across the deepest divides in our culture? Can I see life from the perspective of people who've lived a very different life than I have? I mean the reality is I don't have any dog in this, this criminal justice fight. To your point, the chances that I'm going to be arrested and prosecuted for anything in my lifetime are – are not zero, but something approaching zero, uh, and 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 that's probably true for you and maybe for many of your listeners. And so it's very easy to be unconcerned and say, "Yeah, there's a man in the ditch, but it's not me, and it's not anybody like me, um, and it's and it's unlikely to be my children, and it's unlikely to be the people who are my closest friends." Um, but it is your fellow Americans and they are, they have the force of the United States or the force of the state that you live in brought against them because you gave that power to the people in office because I gave that power to the people in office. And that I think creates on me a moral proximity to, to act. It's, you know, it's not that, um, I, I can't, I can't intervene in the lives of everybody and solve every problem. But I have but, but through our democratic system, I choose every day who I'm going to elect to office, who I'm going to vote for. And one of the things that's, that's great about this this the, the topic of criminal justice and what, what your listeners can do to do about it is pay attention to the elections of your district attorney. Right, Most elections are complicated because when I vote for the president, I can't just vote for criminal justice. I have to think about foreign affairs and economic policy and, and the, the Food and Drug Administration and, what, and, and abortion and sort of all all manner of issues because the federal government touches on so many of those things. And that's often true when I vote for my state legislator or when I vote for the governor or when I vote for the mayor. But the good thing is it's not true when you vote for your district attorney. Your district attorney's got one job, as, as the kids say, right? You have one job, which is criminal justice. And so I can isolate how that prosecutor thinks about criminal justice and say, does that align with biblical justice? Does that align with what I want someone to be doing in my name? to my fellow citizens. As a Christian, is that person gonna to do to my fellow citizens what I believe amounts to loving my fellow citizens? Um, that's, you, you, in many states you can do the same with regard to judicial elections, though again, judicial elections often touch somewhat of a broader range of topics than than criminal justice. Um, but at least in the district attorney elections, you could pay attention and and frankly, those local officials, they care a whole lot about what like a noisy 10 people think. Um, you know, it's not where they're running a nationwide election and they're 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 going to have and they're going to have you know millions of voters. There, a lot of people don't even turn out for these elections. A lot of people don't pay attention to them. And you could actually have an impact um, by showing up at uh Q&A sessions perhaps with those officials or, or trying to interact with them through letters or otherwise, or, or just voting, just being knowledgeable. Um, I think that the criminal justice actually provides a unique opportunity where you can actually have an impact um, on, your, on the way a crime is prosecuted in your community. And you've seen this recently in a number of localities. So a number of uh, localities across the country, Philadelphia, uh, Los Angeles, to just take two examples, have had um, longtime prosecutors thrown out of office as reform candidate, reform-minded candidates have run against them, and, and we can have a debate about whether all the reforms make sense or some of them, or whether they go far enough or not, not to, or, or too far. Um, but the point is that even in a relatively large city, uh, an energized group of people has been able to turn out um, of office prosecutors who the the citizenry thought had gone too far in so-called law and order um, and was committing injustices. And so I think that uh, the district attorney elections in your communities are an excellent way to get involved and actually, once you're educated, both about the issues and about your candidate's position to actually have an impact um, in ways that you really can't in so many other areas because so much of voting is multi-issue voting that you've got to balance competing concerns. Yeah.
0: That's good. I think so many of us sweep that under the rug. We just, we're not giving it the thought and the attention that it deserves. Um, maybe because we're cynical, maybe because we, as you say, we're so far removed from those issues, um, impacting us personally that we don't get involved. Um, and I appreciate what you said about, um, in, in terms of the good Samaritan, you know, can I mentally go there? Can I mentally, um, get into the story from the perspective of somebody very different than me? And what would that look like, um, to be that man or woman?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's our tendency. I think it's all our tendency. It's my tendency is, you know, we think in terms of our own life experiences. We think in terms of our own self-interest. Um, you know, John Rawls in his, uh, famous book, a theory of justice, John Rawls wasn't a Christian, but he wrote a, what is considered a monumental work, um, called a theory of justice, I think in 1971. And he proposes this idea of what we call a veil, what he calls the veil of ignorance, um, or the original position, it's sometimes called. And the veil of ignorance essentially says: if you were trying to design rules, what rules would you design if you didn't know which side of life you'd end up on, right? If, if you if you if you live life knowing, listen, I, I'm unlikely to ever be a criminal defendant. So what I want is fewer rights for criminal defendants and more rights for victims, right? And, and conversely, if you think you're going to be if you think there's a decent chance that you or a family member could get arrested in your community, you're going to be probably more disposed for toward rules that, that favor the accused. And neither of those are doing what the Good Samaritan did, which is thinking across the cultural divide and saying what loves what loves all of my neighbors as themselves as myself. And so I think what the veil of ignorance challenges us to do is to say, if I didn't know in life whether I'd be accused or victim, how would I design the system? Um, How would I want the system to operate if I didn't know what my lot in life would be? And I think that that thinking that way is one way of thinking about how to love your neighbor, all of your neighbors, the accused and the victimized. And, And I emphasize that last point because I do think that we can, in this in this talk of protecting the criminally accused, which I do feel passionately about, that we can also overlook um, crime victims. You know, Crime needs to be prosecuted. I'm not, I'm not a defund the police guy. I spent nearly a decade as a federal prosecutor. My, my uh, youngest brother, who I love dearly, and I'm and greatly proud of as a police detective. My favorite uncle, if you can have favorite uncles, is, uh, was a, a New Jersey state trooper for his entire career. I mean, I believe in what law enforcement does. i participated in myself. I put people in prison myself. I put people on death row. Um, so I, I believe in um, achieving justice for crime victims. Um, but I, in, in the process of doing so, I want to make sure that we do that justly and accurately. Uh, in the way I think that the Bible um, encourages us and demands of us um, that we live justly in our social interactions, including in our
0: structuring of a criminal justice system as a society. Yeah. Matt, you've given us so much to think about. When does the book come out?
1: Well, assuming I meet my uh, deadline (laughs) to get my manuscript in, which I hope to do if justin taylor's listening uh uh, it's due in april and uh the goal is to publish the book in the first quarter of 2023 so a little over 12 months from now so uh, i'm excited about it i'm uh i'm motivated and energized and uh, you probably found this when you wrote a book it's a lot harder than uh uh, than you might think it is. Uh, it's, an, it's been an enormous amount of research so that I'm educated and accurate and hopefully make sure my readers are as well. So about a year out uh, from publication.
0: Yeah. I imagine whenever I see your tweets pop up, Matt, that you're working on the book and you're coming across something interesting <laughs> and you're just sharing it with the rest of us. So, I, I think that's true. That.
1: A lot of what I tweet is probably stuff that will end up on the cutting room floor because I can't fit it in, but I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that's so good. I need to I need to get that out there. So probably m- most of the tweeting is stuff that isn't going to make the book. Uh, and, um, but I, but it's good information that I want folks to be aware
0: of. Yeah. Good. Thanks for sharing that. Don't stop. Where can people keep up with you? I mean, obviously Twitter is one place that we've mentioned where you're Matthew Martins. Where yeah.
1: At, yeah. Uh, yeah. So my, my Twitter handle is at Martins Matt one. Uh, so you can follow me there. I don't have a website um, but as you noted, I tweet pretty prolifically uh, with articles and thoughts uh, and both, both thoughts about criminal justice and thoughts more broadly about Christian ethics um, from a wide, aware, wide array of writers. So um, at least for now, uh, probably the best way to follow me is to follow me on Twitter.
0: Thanks for taking the time, Matt. It's great to get to know you and hear your story and hear your expertise. And we will um, be cheering for you as you finish the finish line of the manuscript.
1: Well, thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.